being here and as Patrick said, please come out to Envision Light tonight. It's going to be a really important night for us, I think, as a church. If you're thinking about joining Sovereign Grace, you too are invited. There's no commitment that you actually do join our church. But if you think, yeah, I'd love to find out what's actually going on this year, you're more than welcome to come along. That'd be wonderful. How kind of the Lord to give us a Welsh summer. This is what Wales is like all the time. And the only difference is it's actually slightly warmer than Wales. So who, who put out the banner this morning? Who went all the way to the front and put out the banner? Daniel. Let's thank Daniel. Goodness. The first thing I saw was the banner and I thought, oh, thank you, Jesus, for whoever did that, the poor things. Listen, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Last week, we started a new five-part series entitled The Race of Our Lives. And together, we got to see that we really are in the race of our lives, aren't we? As a local church and as individuals, we have been called to run. We've been called by God. We have a number on our front and a number on our backs. And we have been called to run in the race of our lives. A race where we get to love people. We get to care for people. We get to go and make disciples of all nations and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded us to follow. And whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we get to do it all for the glory of God. We have all been assigned and equipped for the race of our lives. And this morning then, I want us to carry on in that trend and understand the importance and priority of running dependent. And that's my title for this morning, Running Dependent. We're going to turn again to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Last week we emphasized verse 1. This week we're going to emphasize verse 2. This is the word of the Lord, so let's speak it together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, you ran your race and you are now seated at the right hand of God because you finished. Your race has been run and you took your seat. Oh Lord, you do help us to run the race this morning. Help us to have eyes to see what we're called to. But more even than that, help us to have eyes to see where we are to look. But Lord, we can't do this by ourselves. And so Lord, we throw ourselves before you. We ask for your help this morning. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the most iconic movies that I remember from my childhood is the absolute classic Chariots of Fire. It's an iconic movie that so many people have seen. I still remember well the opening sequence, which begins with the iconic theme tune. Bomb, bomb. Bomb, bomb. What's going to happen? Bomb, 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 bomb. And then it carries on, and you're like, already I'm drawn into the movie. This, this theme tune is getting me going. And then the movie begins with the opening sequence, and you see a group of men a group of athletes running along the beachfront, along the shoreline. They're all dressed in white and the sand and the water is being kicked up as they run, but they don't care because they're running. They're training. And the movie then continues really focusing on the remarkable and true story, story of Eric Little, a man who had become known as the Flying Scotsman and who himself would enter into the 1924 Olympics in Paris and win gold. But he would win gold under very extraordinary circumstances. See, Eric was a Christian, and as a a result, he refused for him personally to run on Sundays. He was a man of fortitude, a man of integrity, a man of courage. And so he nobly held the position that Sunday was the Lord's day, that he wanted to honor the Lord on Sundays, and so he didn't want to do what he considered work, which for him was running. And he gave himself to that. And as a result, even when he got to the Olympics, he discovered that the day for his race was a Sunday. So he refused to run in that race. And 
Yet through God's kindness, he actually got entered into a different race altogether that he hadn't trained for. And he ran in it, he says, for the glory of God, and he won gold. He actually won the gold medal and won the Olympics in 1924 in Paris. It's a wonderful, iconic movie. And the scene in the movie that repeated time and time again for me, that really just got burnt into my mind as a kid, was noticing that when Eric, Eric, whenever Eric Little ran, he always ran with his face in the air. Whenever you see him running, he's always like this. I mean, he's doing a better job than running than that, but he's always looking up. And I remember saying to my dad, because it just kept happening over and over again in the movie, and I couldn't have been very old when I seen it, but I remember saying to my dad, listen, Dad, why does he do that? Why does he run looking up all the time? And my dad just said, well, you know what? He runs up because he believes that when he's running, he can feel the pleasure of God. He believes he's been called to run, and so he looks up believing that as he runs for the glory of God, he feels his pleasure. But more even than that, he runs looking up as an expression of how much he needs the Lord, how dependent he is upon God as he runs. That image, even as a kid, was really burnt into my mind, and it is that exact same image that I believe God wants to burn into our minds right here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. See, we really are in the race of our lives. We really are called by God and equipped by God to run passionately and wholeheartedly with endurance. We've been called by God to make a difference in the world. And as a Christian, he's equipped you to make a difference in the world. We haven't been called just to a day spa. We've been called to a race for Jesus. And yet the reality is, as you examine these verses, is this is a race that we cannot run alone. We have to run it looking up. We have to run it dependently looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There is a high and holy calling on your life, but it is a dependent calling unto the Lord. You know, that's why at Sovereign Grace, we encourage you so much in reading the Bible and in praying. Because there are two means of grace, two spiritual disciplines that the Lord has given us that help us to, verse 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's why we keep exhorting you to do those things, because they're expressions of what it is to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, in the midst of the race that he's called us to. I thought Simon Walker then did an outstanding message on the word just a few weeks ago as he opened up Psalm 19 for us. It really showed us how the word of God through Psalm 19 has a wonderful reviving effect on our souls. And it does. You know, it is like an extremely hot day, running an extremely hot day, and then you get to jump in a pool. The refreshment and reviving effect of that is wonderful, isn't it? And Psalm 19 helps us see that's the way the Word works as well. This is God's Word, God breathed. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is God breathed words, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. This Word is where we discover who God is in His majesty and sovereignty and splendor and joy and how He relates to us in grace and mercy and love and faithfulness. It all comes through this Word. This Word has a wonderful, reviving effect on our souls. Now, you have to jump in the pool to experience it. Otherwise, you're just still hot. But if you jump into the pool of the Word, it has a wonderful, reviving effect on our souls. And then there's prayer, the practice of prayer where we simply just return to the Lord and we spill our guts to the Lord, making it clear that, Lord, I need you. Lord, I love you. Would you be with me? Would you aid me? You know, when you examine the life of Christ, one of the things you discover again and again is he spends a ton of time praying. If the Son of God needs to pray that much, then how much more do we need to pray, don't you think? Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, says it this way. He says, even as the perfect man, he no doubt still needed to pray. A robust, reverential, dependent prayer life was suitable and necessary given the various trials and distresses that he faced as the suffering servant. For the scriptures certainly give the impression that his prayer life was as indispensable for him 
as it is for us. It's so true. Jesus is all the time pulling away early in the morning, going to a desolate place by himself and praying, seemingly for a long time, because on many occasions the disciples wake up and they're like, where is he? Where is he now? I'll give you a clue. He's probably outside, out the back, by himself praying. That's where you find him all the time. If that was Jesus, then how much more do we need that? The word of God has a wonderful reviving effect on our soul. Prayer has a wonderful reviving effect on our lives. They're both expressions of what it is to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, in the midst of the race. But there's also something else. Something else that I think is less understood, less heard of, and that is the practice of fasting. And not many people would put that up there with prayer and Bible reading. But actually, fasting is a wonderful gift from God to us. And something that when you look at the life of Jesus, he readily practiced. See, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, this is what we read. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you remember this point in the story? He's just been baptized. He's been identified that this is the Saviour, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's been baptized. It's the start of his ministry. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The very start of his ministry, and he fasts 40 days and 40 nights. That is a very long time. But that's what Jesus wanted to do and needed to do at the start of his ministry. And you see, as you examine his life, he fasts at various different times throughout his ministry and throughout his life. It's an example that he sets us to follow. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we get to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16a, when Jesus starts addressing his followers on this issue. He simply says, and when you fast. Interesting. Not if you fast. When? He assumes that Christians, that followers of him, will on a semi-regular basis fast before him. And you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, as you study the history books, that's exactly what happened. So Jesus fasted, his early disciples fast for hundreds of years, that carries on. In the first century world, the Jews, in fact most Jews and all followers of Jesus Christ, would have fasted twice a week. Some would have done it on a Monday and a Thursday, others on a Wednesday and a Friday. But it would have been the ongoing and regular practice of a lifetime. And that seems to happen as you study history all the way through to the 1700s. All the way through to the 1700s, it was a core practice and a core belief that to be a follower of Jesus Christ, part of that would mean that you fasted. But around the 1700s, fasting, well, it seemed to fall off the side of a cliff, fell out of favour, people didn't seem to do it anymore. And so for you and I, we have quite simply grown up in a generation for many years where people on the whole have never even heard of it, let alone thought about practising it. You know, I recently was listening to a podcast then on this issue of fasting, and one pastor who led a, a significant-sized church actually interviewed his church. He did a, uh, one of these sort of surveys, blind surveys. You just let people know, you know how it was. And the question was, was, how often do you fast? 45% of people said that they had never fasted in their lives. Another 30% of people said, well, once in a blue moon. So like, you know, maybe like once, I think I remember when I was eight, I think I had a stomach bug or something, I fasted, yeah, I probably did it. And There was only 2% of the entire church that said, you know what, yeah, I understand what fasting is and we regularly do it for the glory of the Lord. Well, listen, in the midst of self-disclosure, I'd want you to know I am definitely numbered among the 98%. I've never fasted in my life, unless if we're talking about stomach bugs, before starting to study this issue and this practice some six months ago. I'd never really heard of it. I do remember as a kid my dad fasting. I never thought to ask him why he did it. I just thought maybe he was either sick or being like really super spiritual. Maybe there's something going on and I don't really get it. Maybe he thinks that he's twisting God's arms like a hunger strike for Jesus. I don't know. I just didn't really like the idea. And even as I get older, I never thought about going back to ask anybody. So up until six months ago, I'd really never thought much about fasting, let alone practiced fasting. But six months ago, I was challenged and provoked by Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, and when you fast. 
not if. He's assuming that followers of him will indeed fast. And as people then that are in the race of our lives, as people that have been commissioned by him, oh my goodness, we need to do all we can to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, do we not? And what you discover as you study this topic, as I have done, is the Lord has not just given us the Bible and not just given us prayer to revive our souls. Fasting also is a wonderful gift of God to you and to me to aid us and help us in this race. And so this morning I want us to examine fasting. I want us to try and get our heads around it for the remainder of the time. And I've got three points there. Number one, what is fasting? We're going real basic this morning. Number two, why should we fast? And number three, how do we fast? I want us simply to wrap our heads around this practice for the glory of the Lord so we can understand it and by God's grace then participate in it, understanding and receiving then the gift and blessing that comes through it. So number one, what is fasting? Well, there are many quotes, there are many uh, things that are out there about fasting. Here's the best thing I could come up with, putting all what I sought to learn together into a sentence. This is the definition, I think, of what biblical fasting is. Fasting is the intentional starvation of the flesh to instead feast on the Lord. It is the intentional starvation of the flesh to instead feast on the Lord. So I want to be clear right from the start, fasting is not abstaining. Okay, Abstaining is abstaining. Fasting is something different. And so you often hear when you talk about Lent, or you know what, I, I've just fasted. I fasted social media. I fasted wine. I fasted coffee. You name a whole load of things. You know you haven't fasted any of those things. You've simply abstained those things. And that's fine. It has a wonderful place before the Lord. But that's not what biblical fasting is. Fasting is not abstaining. Likewise, fasting is not a restricted diet. See, I know some of you are pretty healthy, and you're probably thinking, sweet, fasting is my thing. It will help me lose weight. No, that is not fasting as biblically defined. That is not what you're being called to. That will not benefit you in the way that we're talking about the soul rather than the body. Fasting is not restricted dieting. It's not the Daniel diet. It's not intermittent fasting. It's not the, in, the Atkins diet. I don't think for one moment when Jesus was led out in the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days or 40 nights that the first thing he wanted to say to Satan is, hey, check out my abs. I don't think that's what was happening in that moment. He wasn't thinking about his body. Fasting then is not abstaining. It's not to do with restricted dieting. John Piper says, fasting is whole body hungering for God. That's so well said. And then a wonderful theologian, Willard, says, fasting is feasting, not on food, but on our Lord. My friends, fasting then is the intentional starvation of the flesh to instead feast on the Lord. It is a practice and gift given to us by God whereby we don't eat for a set period of time to instead run to Him and seek to feast on Him, to give ourselves to Him, to cry out for grace from Him. So why then do we do it? Because if we don't understand why we do it, we're going to be in a world of hurt. And actually, to be fair, when Jesus addresses the crowd in Matthew chapter 6, and he's talking about the disciples, about when you fast, not if you fast, it's to do with a lot of fasting being really inappropriate and being unhelpful. He's actually addressing what good biblical fasting is. And so why do we fast? It's important. Why should we do it? What is it about fasting that makes it so incredible? What is it about fasting that makes it such a blessing for the race that God has called us to. Well, as you examine the Bible, I think there's four things that really God gives us in his word to help us understand and wrap our head around why this is so great for the race. Here's the first. Number one, why should we fast? Well, number one, fasting helps us to bring the desires of the flesh into check. Biblical fasting helps us to bring the desires of the flesh into check. See, in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, we all know it's the fall of mankind, isn't it? It's the moment where sin enters into the world. And yet I think what we're often not quite as attentive to is the reality that that original sin involved what? Food. It involved food. 
The very first part means where it all started to unravel for humankind involved food. Genesis 3 then, verses 1 through 6, this is what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. That's not true. It's a lie. You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he The very first sin and the original sin actually entered into the world through eating. It came through eating a forbidden fruit. And in all honesty, for so many people, food has been an ongoing and regular struggle ever since, has it not? Through the means of sin coming into the world, for many, food has been a challenge. The temptation then to see food and desire food and to recognize it is good to eat and brings delight to the eyes and so just gorge yourself on it all day, every day. No sense of what might be good for you, what might be bad for you, or any sense of what is going on at all. You simply just see it and eat it. If you desire it, you just put it down your mouth. No one ever says in growth group, you know, I think one of the things I'm struggling with right now is greed. Did that sin just dissolve itself from the world? Or are we not even seeing it anymore? Food can be a real way of us to be greedy. Just overeating whether it be in one go, whether it be throughout the day. And likewise, in times of difficulty and trial and pressure, food can so quickly become a God substitute, can't it? And so we go through difficulty, we go through trial, life goes tough, we have two options. Here's what we should do. Run to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is what I need. Here's what we tend to do. Run to the fridge, the founder and perfecter of my stomach. It will help me and it will ease my sorrow. Where's the chocolate? You see how it works? Food. It was part of the fall and ever since it has been a challenge for so many people. Ever since food becomes a false god. It becomes something that we see and desire. We see it delight to the eyes and so we just want to fill ourselves with it. And so it's no wonder in Romans chapter 7 that the Apostle Paul talks about this great battle that we have going on with the flesh, between the spirit and the flesh. It's it's the whole session when he starts talking about, you know, why is it that I do the things that I know I shouldn't be doing? And why is it that I don't do the things that I know I should? Oh, wretched man that I am, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, he's not only just talking about food without any doubt. He's talking about lots of things that we struggle with between the spirit and the flesh. But I'd want to encourage you, I think it does include food. So who will rescue me from this body of death? Answer, Jesus. Only Jesus. And as Jesus comes running towards us then to help us of this issue of overly desiring to feed the flesh, one of the gifts of grace he gives us is fasting. Fasting. We see it exemplified in Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, which I mentioned before. Right at the start of ministry, here's the entirety of it in the first four verses. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, As it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. It appears that it would have a transforming effect on his life, bringing his body into check and really feeding his spirit throughout that time. So when Satan comes in to seek to tempt him and seek to pull him in, he makes it very clear, yet my body is hungry, but not as hungry as my spirit is. 
For man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God himself. My friends, one of the gifts of grace that fasting does to us, as exemplified by Jesus, is it helps to bring the desires of our body, of our flesh, into check. It teaches it whenever we do it. The man does not live by bread alone. That isn't the thing that needs to bring me comfort and joy and faith for the race. No, Jesus will bring me faith and comfort and joy for the race ahead. Make sense? What a gift of grace. It's part of why he gives us this gift of fasting. That's not the only reason, though, why we should fast. Number two, fasting amplifies and aids our prayers. I love this one. You want to know God is really hearing you and amplified and aided prayer? Oh, fasting. Fasting is a real gift of grace to us in that regard. Now, so that we're clear and so that we don't think I'm going totally mad and before you write lots of emails to me concerned for my salvation, let me explain what, what I don't mean by that. See, fasting does not amplify our prayers in the sense that God looks at it like some type of um, hunger strike and then says, oh my, they're really serious about this. They fasted for three days. I must answer them. I must. See how seriously they're taking it? It doesn't work like that. It never works like that. God will not be manipulated. He will not be bribed. So it's not like he's looking on and saying, you know, if only they fasted about that as they prayed, I'd probably answer, but seeing that they didn't, I won't. No, that's not what's happening. It's not a hunger strike for Jesus. It's never a hunger strike for Jesus in the world. Likewise, fasting doesn't amplify our prayers in the sense that it causes him to listen more. Not at all. God listens all the time. If you are a child of God, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, he is listening to you all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, hemming you in both behind and before, always leaning in. Listen, fasting does not amplify and aid our prayers in the sense that it impresses God or obliges God or causes him to listen more. It's way more basic than that. Fasting amplifies and aids our prayers because in fasting... We'll simply be talking more. That's why it aids and amplifies our prayers. Because as we fast and we feel hungry, it reminds us, I'm doing this intentionally for the Lord. I want to pray right now. Lord, help me, aid me. I enlist you for these things. It amplifies and aids our prayers in the sense that we will just be praying more. See, I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm praying, when I'm spending time with the Lord and seeking a prayer, there's three things different happen. One, my mind becomes very foggy. I can't even remember what I'm trying to pray for anymore. Number two, my mind becomes tired. Do you ever face that? I feel fine. I feel full of energy. And I close my eyes for 30 seconds and start praying. I'm like, I'm so tired. Just like, what's going on with that? And then thirdly, my mind feels so distracted. You ever have that? You start praying. And within a few minutes, you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I, I, I don't even know what I'm talking to you about. I can't remember what I'm doing because I got so distracted with things that are going on. Well, what God does for that is he gives us a remedy. He gives us something to train us in prayer. He gives us something to do that will help us pray and pray and pray. It is the gift of fasting. An intentional hungering after the Lord What it does is cultivate in our lives more talking before the Lord, which he delights to answer. So yes, fasting amplifies and aids our prayers. And so you see people in the Bible doing it all the time. And you see them doing it as an expression of aiding and amplifying their prayers. And they do it in a whole different range of different issues. And so for example, in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see Nehemiah is struggling with grief. So this is what he does. There's now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, then Hanani, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying 
before the God of heaven. Now, to me, that's a real curious verse. You see, what is happening with Nehemiah is he is hearing about his brothers and sisters and all that has taken place to him, and he, he is grieved. He is, he is depressed. He is down about the whole thing. What are we most tempted to do in that time? Run to the fridge. That's what we're tempted to do. I need fridge. I need food. I need something to fill me and sort me out. Not Nehemiah. No, he knows what I need right now is to fast. I need Jesus. I need God. I need help. I need God to still my soul. I need God to help me in this circumstance. I need God to show me what to do. He is overwhelmed with grief, so he fasts. Isn't it ironic that as a church, when people are struggling with grief, what's the first thing we do? We make them a meal. (laughs) And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But how ironic that in the Bible, maybe a better suggestion is, hey, listen, have you thought about fasting? Just crying out to God for grace, that he would strengthen your soul in the midst of what you're going through. One of the things that they do in the Bible is they do fast when they're struggling with grief. You also see it in the Bible when people are struggling with crisis. When things are going on, that you're just like, man, my world is imploding. It is blowing up. And listen, whatever it is you think you're going through right now, I suggest to you in the Bible, they're probably going through a little more most of the time. And so for example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the armies are surrounding, the armies of Israel's enemies are literally surrounding them. And here's what they've decided. We are going to wipe you off the face of the earth. Men, women, children, you're all going to die. Well, that would provoke anxiety. This is what happens. In chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Menites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazantama, which is Engedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. They're going through crisis. They're going through difficulty. The end is nigh. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Everybody fast. Why? Is it like a hunger strike for the Lord? No. Fast, because it will remind you to pray. And we need to pray because we need the Lord right now. He is the only one that can help us. Don't fill your stomachs. Fill your soul with the Lord. We see it again in Esther chapter 4 when exactly the same thing happens. A decree of genocide goes out against the people of God. And in Esther chapter 4 verse 15 We read, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast just as you do. Crisis comes. Crisis comes to the nation. What do they do? They are on their knees fasting before the Lord, pleading for help. Would you aid us, Lord? And then you see numerous examples in the Bible of discernment. Times when people just don't know what to do. They've got a major decision going on. They just can't quite discern, Lord, what is it you want me to do? I can't work it out. And one of the most famous ones, I think, comes in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, when the disciples and the apostles are gathered together. It is clear that the gospel appears to be going out to the Gentiles as well. And so they're wondering, so, so what are we going to do? How, how are we going to do this? How are we going to orchestrate this? And this is what we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, and lifelong friend of Herod the Tatriarch, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. My friends, do you see what's happening? Whether people are in grief or crisis or discernment, I just can't work out what to do next. They seem to be running to fasting. Fasting, starving the body so they can feast themselves on the Lord. Fasting so they can provide time and focus in their lives to hunger after the Lord and entreat Him. Lord, help me. Give me grace. Give me favor. Give me understanding. Lord, I I need you now. My friends, maybe you're here today and you're going through grief. 
Or maybe you're going through a crisis. Or maybe you're going through an issue where you just can't work out, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? I can't figure it out. I want to encourage you to fast. Fast. Actually take time to go without food. Starve the body. To be able to boldly approach the throne of grace and talk to the Lord. It focuses your mind. It will defog your mind. It will help you. It is a wonderful gift of grace and an expression of dependence upon the Lord. That's not all fasting does. Number three. Fasting helps us to have eyes for the poor and the needy. It helps us to have eyes for the poor and the needy. You know, it's so easy in our lives, particularly when the going gets tough and our legs start to get tired, to find ourselves somewhat self-focused, isn't it? You ever face that? You're in the race. It's going difficult. Where do my eyes go? Well, ideally to the Lord, but sometimes they don't go to the Lord. Where do they go? To myself. To me. What about me? Why is everybody not looking after me? And we face that in the race, I think, again and again and again, when our breathing and our needs and our race consumes us just by itself. And yet a big part of the race that God has called us to is to run towards the poor and needy, isn't it? The poor and needy of soul. Those that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. People that are all around you and everywhere in this nation that do not know Him as Lord and Savior. That even now are running headlong towards hell and away from Him. And the poor and needy of body as well. Those that are doing it tough. Those that actually don't have meals on the table. Those that don't have anywhere to lay on their heads. You know, in God's kindness then, He's given us a gift of grace to help us remind us about those people, those poor and needy of soul and of spirit. What do you think it is? Fasting. It's fasting. Because as we go without and we feel it in our bellies, you know, one of the things that happens, one of the things that happens is we become very aware not everybody eats like me. Not everybody has it easy like me. Not everybody has things around their life everywhere like me. He's given us a wonderful gift of grace then to be reminded as we feel those hunger pains of the poor of spirit and the poor of body. Those that haven't got what I've got, whether it be a relationship with Jesus or whether it be food on the table. And we see that fasting is to be used like that as a reminder about the lost in Isaiah 58. See, in Isaiah 58... The people of God are misusing fasting. They're fasting, but they are misusing it. And God addresses them. In Isaiah 58, verses 3 to 6, they speak to the Lord first. They said, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're complaining against the Lord. Hey, we're busy fasting. You don't seem to be noticing. Well, that was probably an unwise statement on their behalf because he's got a few words for them. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. He's saying you may go without food, but you are completely missing the point. You're still abusive to the people around you. You're still taking advantage of your neighbor. He says this in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. He's trying to help him see, people, you're missing the point. As you fast, you're not doing it to try and twist my arm to do something. Part of what you're doing is reminding yourself that not everybody has it like you. And so as you feel those hunger pains, as you fast, it is designed to remind you of the bonds of wickedness that we're to loose, to undo the straps of the yoke, to help the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke in people's lives. It is so easy in our lives in Sydney to get totally self-consumed, is it not? Fasting is an ongoing practice to remind you it's not about you. This race is about others. Feel it in your bellies and see it with your eyes. Those that are poor and needy around you. And then number four, the fourth thing that fasting helps us with is that fasting helps us to long for home. 
It helps us to long for home. See, just last week, we had a taste and a reminder of home, didn't we? We looked at the story of Finney in Randy Alcorn's book, Deadline. I read about the day that he meets Jesus as his Lord and Saviour in the flesh. And in all honesty, those types of reminders are so very helpful to us, aren't they? You know, I'm aware that many people in groups this week were chatting about the message and often things that came up were about, me. it was just so helpful to have a vision for the finish line, that this isn't it, that heaven is our home. And when we take the time to discuss that type of stuff in a message, it does that, doesn't it? It reminds us that we're aliens here, we're strangers here. Heaven is our home. We were made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus and that place is heaven. And one of the comments I think that I can get back, which is very endearing and wonderful to hear, is, man, how do you live with just more of a mindset of heaven? How do you build into your life more of a passion for home, more of a passion to actually be with Jesus? How can I build something into my life where home and being with Jesus can actually be my focus? Well, you probably guessed it by now. Fasting. Fasting. It's one of the means of grace that he's given us it for. Matthew chapter 9 then. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9 verse 14 to 15. says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. It's implied in the text, but if you pay attention and think about that and meditate about that, what he's saying is this, listen, the reason why they don't fast is because I'm with them. The one that fasting points to, the one that it helps create longing for, is actually with them. So they don't need to fast right now. But a day is coming when I will go, where I will die and resurrect and seat at the right hand of the Father. And they will miss me and long to be with me. And part of helping them long to be with me will be fasting. So no, they don't need to fast right now. But a day will come when they should fast again. Because the bridegroom will no longer be with them. And I want them then to long for me. Something that fasting does. You know, one of the privileges I have in my life is traveling on behalf of the Lord, traveling on behalf of you, and traveling on behalf of Sovereign Grace Churches globally. And I get to see a ton of different countries and it is the kindness of the Lord to me. I trust I'm effective. I'm praying I'm effective. If I'm not, that's totally fine and they can find somebody else and I'm all good with that. And when the day comes when I'm not traveling anymore, I'm totally all good with that as well. I love you. I would be happily just be here full time. That's great. And yet every time when I travel, there's always the same moment, whatever country I'm in, there's always a moment that happens to me every single time. And it's this. When the last amen of the last prayer is said at whatever I'm doing globally, I am longing for home. It's usually at that point that they turn to me and say, hey, listen, you know, the conference is finished. The time with us is finished. We're so blessed. We'd love to take you out for the day tomorrow. We should show you around. And my response every time is this. No, thank you. I want to go home. I want to go home. I miss my wife. I miss my kids. And if I could get a plane at that minute, amen, I would every single time. That is the longest time. Every time the deal is done, we've spent time praying, we've spent time doing all that we do there, and then I'm just like, we're done. It's been great. If I could take my bag and walk to the airport and get on a plane, I would there and then because I long for home. I long to be with my family. My friends, I submit to you, that is exactly what Jesus wants us to feel about him. He doesn't want us to take this world as home, as if, yeah, it's so cool, how to die, oh, that's going to be awful, I'm not going to be able to enjoy this anymore. That's like me saying, oh, the Philippines is so good, I don't want to go home, this is so good. He wants us to long for home. He wants us to long to be with him. He wants us to long to see his face and to look forward to that day, realizing this isn't my home. Heaven is my home. And being with Jesus in the flesh is my home. You know, fasting then really is an incredible gift from God, isn't it? 
when you put it all together, you realize this is an incredible gift, an incredible opportunity that for many of us, we've probably never even heard a message about in our lives. Well, finally, then number three, how do we fast? What do we do? Just in closing, this is short. Because it would be a real shame if we preach our guts out about this and we get excited about it and then we do absolutely nothing with it. We're not blessed in our hearing, James tells us. We're blessed in our doing. So how do we fast? Well, it's very clear in the Bible that there really aren't any set rules about how you do it at all, which is cool. So there are many examples in the Bible of one-day fasts, from sunup to sundown. But there are also a bunch of examples in the Bible of 24-hour fasts, three-day fasts, seven-day fasts, 40-day fasts. And there are also examples in the Bible of half-day fasts. So somebody maybe where they've just given birth or something of that nature, hey, let's just do a half-day because it's not going to maybe be great for your body to do it right now. There's examples of all these things in the Bible. And so what you realize is there isn't like a set time or a set day that we're meant to be doing. Likewise, when it comes to, well, should I drink with a fast? Should I drink water or not? Well, the Bible's pretty open-ended in that too. Most fasts in the Bible are with people drinking water. But some aren't. Some fast people go without completely. They just want to totally hunger and thirst after the Lord. It would also appear that fasting in the Bible can be done both individually and corporately at different times. There are many illustrations in the Bible of individuals fasting before the Lord, something that they've sought to build into their lives as a discipline. And yet there's also plenty of examples in the Bible of people corporately fasting. So you have the example of Esther, where she calls the nation to all fast for three days. Yom Kippur, every year, the Day of Atonement, a national day of fasting before the Lord that they would all then break together in the evening. And then there are numerous examples of groups in the book of Acts, just groups fasting before the Lord, seeking to discern what to do next or looking in for grace in a specific circumstance. The Bible then is very wide. It doesn't give us any specific how-tos when it comes to fasting. So here's my encouragement to you then as a pastor and understanding it. I want to encourage you to pick a day, pick a time, and fast. See, the road to nowhere is paved with good intentions. And my experience is if we don't pick a day, and we don't pick a time, it'll never happen. Because the road to nowhere is paved with good intentions. So I want to encourage you to pick a day and pick a time, and then fast before the Lord. With the Bible in one hand, with a prayer journal in the other of things that you want to be praying for before the Lord in your back pocket, just give a day to Lord, I'm going to fast for you. I'm going to starve my body so that I can hunger after you today. You know, one of the things we're going to be starting next month in the month of March is the first Friday fast. Something we've never done before as a church, but we thought it'd be really neat for the first Friday of every month to corporately fast as a church. You don't have to, it's not a three-line whip, but we want to encourage as many people that can to do so. We'll be looking to put on the blog that week things that we can specifically be praying for about our city, about our world, about our church, about our lives. I want to encourage people to to fast all on the same day before the Lord as an expression of hungering after him. But I want to encourage you, even outside of that, please seize this opportunity of fasting as the gift from God that it really is. Don't wait for everybody to do it. Go for it yourself. Fasting helps us to bring the desires of the flesh into check. Fasting helps us to have our prayers aided and amplified before the Lord. Fasting helps us to have our eyes so the poor and needy focused on them. And fasting helps us to long for home, to cultivate in our bodies and in our souls a great longing to be with Jesus on that last day. What a gift. My friends, you and I really are in the race of our lives. Don't be fooled to thinking you're not. You know, one of the questions that that came up in different groups this week is, well, is everybody really in the race then? How does this work? If you're a Christian, you are definitely in the race. It's just a question of whether you're really running or not. You standing at the side, got distracted? Or are you flat out running for Jesus, trying to make a difference with your life? You're all in the race. Just some might be running and some might be not. But I'm eager, as are all the pastoral team, that together we would all run. We are all in the race of our lives. 
But make no mistake, my friends, you will not endure in this race by yourselves. Maybe for some, that's why you're getting, getting it wrong. Maybe for some, that's why you're so tired and exhausted. Why is this so hard? Or maybe you forgot verse 2. Maybe you forgot to look up to the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are in the race of our lives, but we have to run it dependently. And so my friends, I want to encourage you then, looking up, with our Bible in our hands and our prayer journal in our pockets, would we also seize the gift and opportunity that fasting is? Would we run the race? And would grace abound to us all? Let's pray. Lord, you're so kind in the way you address us and open our eyes to things in your word. And Lord, I'd have to confess, prior to six months ago, fasting had never even been on my radar. But Lord, I thank you for drawing our attention to the reality of the gift of what fasting is. Lord, when it comes to your word, you make it clear that we are in a race, but we are in a race that we must look up. Like Eric Little, our eyes must be to the sky. It's as we look up that we feel your pleasure. And it's as we look up that we remind ourselves that I am dependent upon you, the founder and perfecter of my faith. Lord, no running can be done outside of you. Indeed, you tell us in your word, nothing can be done outside of you. So Lord, as we run this race, and as we stumble at times, and as we fall at times, would we keep picking ourselves up and would we keep looking at you, the founder and perfecter of our faith? Yet not I, but through Christ in me is the chant of this race. Would we run it? Looking up. Amen.